0: Welcome to The Forest and the Trees, Global and Local Perspectives on the Environment, with your host, Melinda Tuhus. First I'm sharing a short interview with Drew Hudson, an activist who was on the front lines of stopping West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin's side deal from being attached to the continuing resolution to fund the government. This was the deal that Senator Majority Leader Chuck Schumer promised Manchin in exchange for Manchin's vote for the Inflation Reduction Act. I was very involved in this also, and this was a great win, though it's only the first round. After Drew, I'll be speaking with a leader of the No Coal, No Gas campaign in New England. Stay tuned.
1: This was a really big victory and credit does go to the grassroots activists uh, who helped make it happen. Um, the way that the victory came about was uh, a mixture of democratic opposition, which was driven primarily by those grassroots and especially environmental justice groups, because this was very much, uh, before you know the grassroots came out in opposition, nobody was opposed to the idea of Manchin getting a special deal that benefited his special projects uh, in exchange for the Inflation uh, Reduction Act. And so originally this was uh, considered a non-controversial plan, but once people uh, began to talk about the specifics, there was a watermarked version, of watermarked by the American Petroleum Institute version of the bill that leaked early. And then later, eventually, finally, Manchin did release the text of the bill that he wanted to attach to the continuing resolution. And it was basically the same as the API version had been. And so once it became clear that, yeah, this was really as bad as we had feared, uh, grassroots groups really came out in force. Um, it started in, in major in, uh, on September 8th with a big rally in Washington, D.C. We talked about fossil fuel projects all over the country and the danger of creating a sort of special expedited permitting regime for projects on energy that, that Joe Manchin would prefer, um, which would heavily benefit the fossil fuel industry. And from there, it really kicked off uh, in the House and the Senate. Um, Bernie Sanders made a speech on that same day on September 8th on the floor uh, saying that he was opposed to the idea. And then a couple of days later, uh, Representative Grijalva in the House came out with his letter, which had about 75 signers on it in the House uh, by the time it was all done, and expressed the same kind of thing, strongly opposed to the idea of the deal. Uh, and expressed especially concern about the environmental justice impacts of things like rolling back the National Environmental Policy Act or NEPA, as well as the Clean Water Act. Um, that was one big uh, step of, of opposition to the bill. And the, the entreatment was really to leadership, to uh, Chuck Schumer in the Senate and Nancy Pelosi in the House, not to make Democrats uh, have that terrible decision to have to decide whether to keep the government open and functioning, which of course is one of the most basic jobs of Congress, uh, or to vote for this really bad uh, side deal with Joe Manchin. The last nail in the coffin is that Republicans were opposed to the bill, but probably Republicans were, most Republicans voted against the continuing resolution anyway, even without Manchin's deal attached. Uh, And even though it contained, for example, emergency relief funding for some of their own states and other things.
0: So we know that this is temporary. As you said, all environmental victories are temporary. This one may be especially temporary because they're still, Biden and Manchin are still talking about, uh, you know, attaching this to another must-pass bill. So um, what do we think the future holds and how soon is this likely to come up again?
1: Yeah, so uh, we're we're in the clear, we think, just for a couple of weeks, uh, mostly because Congress goes on recess for, for several weeks. The main vehicles we're looking at are in what's called the lame duck session, so after uh, the election on November 8th, uh, and before the next Congress takes uh, its seats in uh, January of 2023. Joe Manchin, in particular, um, had talked about possibly attaching the deal to the National Defense Authorization Act um, as a next step. Again, that will come up in the uh, Lynn Duck session between the election and the new year. There has been some already some pushback uh, from Republicans, again, uh, saying that they don't think that the the defense spending bill, the National Defense Authorization Act, should be used in that way to do domestic policy. Of course, in the Senate, you know this really com- will come down again to what does Chuck Schumer want to do um, and what level of brinksmanship is he prepared to play with whatever bill he's attaching Manchin's dirty deal to. I think what we've seen is that there's a, a solid block of opposition, more than 50 senators, more than 75 members of the House are very much opposed Uh, to the idea of Manchin's permanent deal. In the Senate, a bunch of those are Republicans, and they think it doesn't go far enough, and a couple of them are Democrats who think it's too friendly to fossil fuels. But either way, the dynamics are the same. There aren't the votes to pass it as a standalone bill right now. So uh, Schumer can do a couple of things to get around that. One is he can keep trying to attach it to other unrelated pieces of legislation and hope that there's enough stuff in the underlying legislation, the Defense Authorization Act or another continuing resolution or whatever it may be, that people will sort of feel like they have to vote for it, even if they don't like the mansion dirty deal being attached. Um, The other option that he always has before him, and we've been encouraging him to explore this, is he could just send the bill through the regular committee process. Joe Manchin, of course, is the chair of the Senate Energy Committee. That is the committee that would have jurisdiction over Manchin's permitting bill, which deals with energy infrastructure. Um, There's absolutely no reason why Joe Manchin can't hold a committee hearing on his own bill and ask people to vote for it and just act like a normal senator, as opposed to someone who thinks that he's king of energy policy in America, and just, you know, put forward his ideas, and, and there would be amendments, and there'd be opportunities for both Republicans and Democrats to say, we, we like this part, we don't like that part. Um, on the Democratic side, a lot of folks were talking about the mentioned Dirty Deal, they really liked the the parts of the bill that dealt with electric transmission reform. Um, and there is a sense that we may need to build more power lines faster uh, in this country to deal with growing renewable energy supply, which is part of what the Inflation Reduction Act is supposed to do, is, is help us build more renewable energy. And then how's that renewable energy going to get from the solar panel or the wind turbine into somebody's house or business or a big city uh, farther away from those sources? So there's a bunch of different ways that, that Schumer and Manchin, if they want to, could try and build a coalition of 50 senators to support this but they would have to do it through regular order. If they keep going back to the same strategy of attaching it to unrelated spending bills, I think they will probably keep having the same problem.
0: That was Drew Hudson, a consultant with several grassroots climate groups. Next up is Leif Taranta, a staffer for the Climate Disobedience Center and a coordinator with the campaign, No Coal, No Gas.
2: So Climate Disobedience Center is, we're a very small collective. And our main role is we support communities that are engaging in direct action. Um, so that can look many different ways. We've done legal support for various movements before. We've given a lot of trainings. We do support for No Coal No Gas, um, helping folks do planning, helping folks prepare for things. Um, that's sort of our collective's role is supporting those communities that are wanting to take on those risks to protect their homes and their loved ones from the harms of fossil fuel infrastructure and also from other um, systems of oppression. We've done support for unhoused encampments and um, police abolition work and stuff like that as well. So we're really just like a very small group that goes and um, meets people in communities who are doing these struggles and then tries to bring our knowledge and connections to help out wherever we can. So that's kind of the role we've played in no coma gas and Climate Disobedience Center, was some of the founders of no coal, no gas, but it has since gotten much, much bigger. And there's a whole community of folks from all over New England who are part of the campaign and the main leaders in it. So um, those of us from Climate Disobedience Center are around to do support. I also work as a coordinator of no coal, no gas, as well as working with the Climate Disobedience Center. So I do a lot of the helping people find roles in the movement, helping them Know where they can use their vocations to help shut down this coal plant. Um, so that's a lot of the work that I do.
0: Okay. So tell us, um, tell us about no coal, no gas. I mean, I think a lot of people uh, have been uh, miseducated to think that you know, gas is the bridge to a clean energy future. It's going to replace coal, and that'll be great. So why is this organization called No Coal, No Gas?
2: Yeah. Oh, that's a great question. Um. So. We're calling No Coal and the Gas because we have um, our mission in terms of what the change we want to create in the New England grid is to stop all use of coal on our electrical grid and also prevent coal plants from being transitioned to gas plants and oppose new gas plants and eventually work on getting gas plants shut down. Um, so our main focus right now is the Merrimack Station in Bow, New Hampshire, which is the last coal plant in our region. Uh, so we've been doing a lot of work to shut that one down and get coal completely off the grid. But we have a fear that if they decommission the coal part of that plant, they will convert the facility to a gas plant, which is not at all helpful um, for the climate or for the local air and water in Bow. Um, so we're calling no coal and the gas to say, we don't want the coal, but we also don't want you to come and use gas as a replacement for the coal Um, We have a huge problem in New England where the regional grid operator and all the gas companies have been using this rhetoric of we need gas for reliability and the grid won't be reliable without gas. And then lately, as there have been um, gas supply line problems and shortages, their answer is we need more gas, which is just absurd from a practical standpoint and also from a climate standpoint, because we know fracked gas uh, causes a lot of carbon emissions, there are also really high methane emissions associated with fracked gas. So it's not a climate solution at all, but there's this rhetoric that it's a bridge fuel and we need it to transition the grid away from the from coal, when in reality we should be looking more towards wind and solar and small in-stream hydro or offshore wind, um, offshore hydro, because those are much um, better actual climate solutions. So we want to stop them from using gas as uh, a fake promised solution, right?
0: And I, yeah, we should say that. I should say that uh, here in Bridgeport, that's exactly what happened. They closed uh, a gas plant that was—I mean, sorry—a coal plant, and the company built a gas plant to operate instead of the coal plant, which was caused a lot of uh, dissension in in the environmental community. Some people, you know, thought it was a better deal than having coal and others were adamantly opposed to that. I, I always like to quote, uh, I did a lot of interviews and stories around issues related to fossil fuels, different fossil fuels. And um, I learned a long time ago that uh, in, a sh- in the short term, methane is over a 10 year time frame, methane is a hundred times worse for the climate than coal. Um, it, it dissipates quickly. But it's very, it's a very powerful planet, you know, heat trapping gas. And and now, and then I was saying, well, we have a decade left and now we have about seven years left till we get to that 2030 deadline that the the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, said back in 2018, we need to, you know, reduce our consumption of fossil fuels by half and instead we're going the other direction. So things look pretty bad in, in many ways, but um, we have to keep going so um can you tell us a little more about this plant in bow where in new hampshire is it how big is it you know like uh what's the you know population center around it that's impacted by
2: what must be really terrible emissions yeah definitely um yeah this coal plant is in bow it's right on the merrimack river um which is a problem because it's a huge watershed and the plant takes up a lot like millions of gallons per day of that water, heats it up, uh, uses it in their cooling systems, and then spits it back out into the river. So just on like the local watershed, there's a huge impact of heating up the river, uh, which hurts the fish, it hurts all the wildlife. So that's like a local environmental problem. And in addition to the big climate ones we've been talking about, it's located in Bow, which is a working class community. Uh, it's just upstream from Hooksit, which is also a working class community. They're both sort of uh, on the outskirts of like the Concord area. And the plants and missions are really horrible. We have a lot of friends and comrades in Bo who their whole family has cancer from swimming in the river or living next to the plant. There's a really high um, asthma rate in the area, And according to, we found this research from Global Energy Monitor that says that the emissions of the plant are responsible for three deaths a year in the area, six heart attacks. And I think it's 47 asthma attacks. So it's just awful for people's health. And there's a big ash dump too, where once they burn the coal, they have this ash they have to get rid of. And they're just been piling it up on this lot. So there's all this toxic ash around. I've been to the coal plant for actions and been up on the smokestack and you can like physically feel how terrible the air is there and it burns. So just like people living next to that their entire lives, it has a huge health impact on the whole surrounding community. It's really terrible.
0: You're hearing Leif Taranta, who is one of the campaign coordinators for um, a project called No Coal, No Gas. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Being up on the smokestack would give you a certain perspective. So, yeah, and um, I have asthma, so I was like, oh, Ooh. whoa, whoa. Um, I, I'm curious uh, what the um, the labor force is. Are they all local? And are is there is, is there a pushback to closing the plant from the jobs perspective?
2: Yeah. Um. So they used to be union and more local workers, and when um, Granite Power, which is the hedge fund, um, the company that is owned by hedge funds that now owns the plant. When they bought the plant, they ended a lot of their union contracts and have gone mostly to private contractor, um, type work schedules. So a lot of the folks that work there are, and are doing like the day-to-day like physical tasks are private contractors from further away who work there part-time. Um, and according to some research we've done on like job forums, a lot of them hate it there and say that the company has no idea what they're doing. It's not a great place to work. Um, when we've interacted with them, they've been very friendly. Um, so from the private contractor perspective, there has not been a lot of pushback. And I think that that's because they are not, um, unionized jobs. They don't have a great, support from their uh, company or anything. Um, some of the jobs higher up in Granite Short Power, like the CEO, some of the managers, I believe a few of them are still unionized. Um, and those are like the higher higher ranking jobs. Um, there are very few jobs at this plant overall because it doesn't run very often. So it's sort of sporadic work schedule. So we we've been trying to build more relationships with the workers. But so far we haven't really had any pushback. A lot of the workers, especially the private contractors posting on their own forums have said, this plant is gonna shut down within the next five years. It shouldn't be running. These people don't know what they're doing. Um, So we're hoping to build some more solidarity with them and also stress like whatever happens to this land, they need to be taken care of. They need to have new jobs. Um, They need to have better jobs than the one they currently have. No one should have to work in a toxic environment. Um, killing themselves and other people to make a living. So, so far it's been um, pretty friendly but distant contact with them and we're hoping to build more relationships.
0: Tell us some of the creative things that No Coal, No Gas has done up there to you know, try to get
2: the plant to close. Oh, sure. Um, we have done a whole spectrum of actions Uh, some of the first actions we started doing was going into the coal plant and removing coal so that it couldn't be burned. Um, And what we would do with that coal is one, just take it out um, so they'd have less coal. And then we would also deliver it to say the New Hampshire state house or to electrical CEOs houses or the regional grid operators offices as a message of look at how horrible this substance is. This is in people's communities. This is being burned. You need to dress this head on and deal with it. And also as a statement of we're going to remove it and make it so it can't be burned anymore. So that was one tactic. Well, wait a minute. Let me, let me stop you. How did you just walk in and take out the coal? (laughs) Um, I mean, it, it is, uh, it is an illegal action to go in and take the coal away. Um, At times we have been able to get away with it. At other times people have been arrested in attempts to get the coal. So we had a big action in September of 2019 where I think 68 people in the 60s, number of people were arrested with buckets trying to liberate coal from the coal plant. Um, So it's been an ongoing process of trying to get get in there, get coal, get out. So talk a little bit about the relationship of this
0: plant to what's known as ISO New England, uh, ISO being independent systems operator, uh, and maybe even just explain. I'm sure 99.9% of our listeners do not know what that is. So explain what the ISO is, what its role is, and how the plant or any plants, any uh, power plants in in New England uh, connect with that.
2: Yeah, so... ISO New England is our regional grid operator. They are technically a nonprofit um, run mostly by energy insiders um, that manages our grid. So they hold an auction um, every year that decides how much money they're going to send to various plants to stay open in the future. So that's just one of the things they do. Other things they do are deciding in the moment which plants are going to be running, balancing our entire grid so that our energy is reliable. They really focus on reliability as one of their main goals. Um, And that's one of the reasons why they hold this market where they say, okay, you're all going to submit bids, all these different power plants, and then we will pay you to exist into the future in case we need you to turn on. So it's called the forward capacity market because they're basically paying for capacity in the future to be available. So Merrimack Station, for example, doesn't run most of the time. It's a peaker plant, which means it generally just turns on when the electrical demand is really, really high. Uh, So how they have stayed financially feasible is through this forward capacity market where they say, okay, we're not gonna run most of the time, but we will get payments from our regional grid operator to exist in case they want us to turn on five years from now. So that's how this coal plant has been staying open is because they've been getting millions of dollars every year just to exist. So on times of really high demand, they can be asked to turn on. Um, and a lot of people say, oh, well, you know, if it's really high demand, then they must be necessary. And the truth is they're not because ISO New England has a really high margin for the excess energy they need on the grid. So if, say, there's a day where it's really hot or really cold and people need a lot of heat or um, air conditioning or other electricity to you know, keep our society running, they will ask a lot of power plants to turn on to have that extra margin, and Merrimack Station will be one of them. But it's not like Merrimack Station itself is keeping the entire grid from having a brownout. It is just one of many that are getting millions of dollars to help contribute to that buffer. So they could totally be taken offline, and we would still have more than enough excess electricity for times of great demand. But they are using this system of forward capacity payments to stay financially feasible, and they're getting so much money. The other worst part about it is that those forward capacity payments from come from our ratepayer utility bills. So each person in New England is paying 10 to 20 percent of their electrical bill are going to these forward capacity payments for fossil fuel plants just to exist in case they need them um, So that's really horrible and unfair from like an economic justice perspective and also from a climate perspective. So that's one of the reasons we've been trying to lean on ISO New England to stop giving these forward capacity payments to Merrimack and to other similar fossil fuel plants that aren't really aren't necessary, but are using this ratepayer system to stay open.
0: You're hearing Leaf Taranta, who is one of the campaign coordinators for the um, a project called No Coal, No Gas. And we've been hearing about how um, this group has been carrying out lots of creative activities to um, basically bring attention to this last operating coal plant in the New England states. Um, and I know, Leaf, that very recently, like earlier this week,
2: you pulled off another creative action. Um, can you just talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, our latest action was targeting the companies that own this coal plant. So um, those are the companies that are receiving the payments from ISO New England and are profiting off of keeping this coal plant running. So there's Granite Short Power, which owns the coal plant directly. And then there's their parent company, Atlas Holdings, which is a private hedge fund um, investment firm that is located in Greenwich, Connecticut. And they're the ones that are making a lot of money off of running this plant so we've been trying to target them and the reason we wanted to target them this week are a couple reasons one is because it was the year anniversary of one of our actions at the coal plant where we went onto the coal plant property and we planted a pollinator garden to try to uh remediate the soil from the damages of the coal plant and so we wanted to do something to commemorate that action we have a tradition of doing lots of actions in the fall, whether it's removing coal or planting gardens or blocking coal trains or all sorts of other things. So we wanted to commemorate that. And we realized that there was a window in the ISO forward capacity auction cycle where the plant owners could file to delist the plant from the auction. So basically saying, we don't wanna put in a bid to receive more forward capacity payments. We're not reliable enough. We don't wanna run anymore. And we thought, oh, that definitely needs to happen. This is the time this week that that bid needs to be made. And so we decided to make it ourselves. Um, what we did is we created a fake website of Granite Shore Power, which we called Granite Shores Power because we didn't wanna you know, steal their copyright or anything. It's a parody, um, it's a satire action. So we created a website and then we wrote a press release as Granite Shores Power, saying, we are Granite Shores Power, we are going to file to delist this plant, we have realized that it's not necessary for reliability, it's not actually reliable itself because of all these outside constraints that are making it hard for us to run, and we realize it's harming the community and the planet. So we are going to file to delist this plant, we are going to divest from coal, and we are going to explore options for the future of the land that include remediating the harms from the coal burning, transitioning it to renewable energy and also the possibility of rematriating some of that to local indigenous folks. So we released this press release and then we got it published in Utility Dive, which is a really big um, utility industry newspaper. Um, and the idea of this was really to just like show what should be happening and show the truth of the actions that Creature Power isn't taking, but they should be. And also to freak them out a little bit Um, because a lot of hedge funds really care about their brand. Um, So, you know, it was some brand satire sabotage as well. Um, And we're waiting for a response right now. And hopefully they will come back and say, you know what, you're right, we are doing this. Uh, But we'll see. They haven't uh, contradicted it yet. So we have no proof that we were not right. So that's exciting. (laughs) Okay. Well, good luck. Um, And we don't have too much
0: time left, but... um, I just wanted to sort of wrap up by talking about you know future actions or future focus. Uh, you know what what you think? No, no gas. No, I always get it mixed up. No coal, no gas. Uh, we'll we'll be doing and and if it's no coal, no gas. This this is the last operating coal plant in New England, but there's a heck of a lot of gas plants. Do you have plans to
2: move around and focus on any of those? Yeah. So. We're hoping we get a shutdown date for Merrimack pretty soon, um, fingers crossed. Um, But in the meantime, yes, we are wanting to also fight gas plants. We are in partnership with a lot of groups who are already doing that. So there are folks fighting the Peabody Peaker. There are folks fighting the Weymouth Compressor. There are folks fighting a gas plant in upstate New York that is owned by the same hedge fund. So we have a lot of partnerships with those folks and wanting to you know, use our skills and knowledge to support them, um, amplify whatever they're doing, show up for their actions and vice versa. So that's a lot of what we've been doing on the gas front so far. But yes, my um, intention at least is as we move towards, you know, no more coal on the grid, there's so much gas to go after. And we have this really strong network of people who are committed to this work, who know each other really well, who are skilled in direct action. So that's been the other big goal of this campaign is not just how do we shut down this one plant, but then how do we build this network of people who are ready to shut down all the gas plants? So that's the the long-term dream.
0: Okay. Well, I wanna thank you so much. This has been a really interesting conversation. I've been speaking with Leif Taranta, who is one of the uh, campaign coordinators for the No Coal, No Gas campaign. Um, focusing right now on a uh, plant in New Hampshire, but with plenty of other targets, as you just said. So thank you so much for being with us and good luck in your work. Thank you so much. For more information, you can visit their website, nocolnogas.org, and click on trainings to learn about an upcoming Zoom training on October 18th. You've been listening to The Forest and the Trees, global and local perspectives on the environment. With your host Melinda Tuhus. Tune in on the second Saturday of every month at 9:30 a.m. here at WPKN 89.5 FM and online at wpkn.org. For more environmental news you can use